All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to The Timeout, a podcast where we speak with leading surgeons about their journeys in their careers and also some of the key decisions and lessons that they've learned along the way. My name is Jason, and on today's episode, we'll be speaking with Mr. Eric Levi, um, who's a pediatric ENT surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital and also at St. Vincent's. Um, Eric, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for the invitation, Jason. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, For those of us who haven't met you before, would you like to just introduce yourself to our listeners? Cool. Um, My name is Eric. I'm a pediatric and adult um, ear, nose and throat head and neck surgeon. Um, I spend about a third of my time at the Royal Children's Hospital, a third of my time at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, and the rest of the time in the private practice. I deal with, um, uh, you know, ENT, head and neck, uh, challenging, exciting, fascinating conditions, uh, both from the neonatal age group all the way to the elderly cancer group. Um, that's all exciting, Jason. You should be an ENT surgeon, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of uh, otolaryngology and, and ENT, we don't really get a lot of exposure to those topics in medical school. So um, just to sort of maybe make sure we're on the same page, can you provide a bit of explanation about, you know, the different terms that are out there, what they mean. And um, you've already spoken a little bit about what you what you do. Um, so, yeah, just some of what, what exactly the, the different terms are supposed to represent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's true. Uh, ENT as a specialty is almost like a magic box. Uh, it's not well covered in the, the uh, medical general medical curriculum. Um, and people find it a bit fascinating. People looking up um, tiny little holes uh, with their torch lights. Um, but it's one of those fascinating things as well, whereby up to about 50 to 70 percent of um, primary care presentations or emergency department presentations can be linked to an ENT head and neck condition. So just on a general broad form, otorhinolaryngology. Oto is ear, rhino is nose, larynx is the voice box. Um, And we also have head and neck as part of our domain as well. So if people ask me what does an ENT head and neck surgeon do, I would say we deal with everything above the clavicle and outside the brain. Sometimes in the brain, uh, but preferably outside. We leave the brain to our neurosurgical colleagues. Um, and of course, we treat um, both pediatric and adult. A huge part of our practice involves general um, you know, uh, condition that every one of us would have experienced. Uh, sinusitis, tonsillitis, uh, middle ear infection, uh, dizziness, tinnitus, um, snotty noses, all sorts of common conditions, including snoring um, and sleep apnea. And then we also deal with some of the more complex conditions, such as head and neck cancer, throat cancer, laryngeal cancer, tumors of the nose. Um, We assist the neurosurgeons with transphenoidal pituitary surgery, for example. Um, And there's also another part where we do a lot of uh, cosmetic uh, facial plastic surgery as well as part of our training. Um, a good example is uh, yesterday I did a th- retrosternal thyroid. Today I've done a parotid tumor. And uh, next week I'm doing an exit procedure. If you don't know what an exit is, it stands for extra uterine intrapartum treatment, where we secure a fetus and, uh, oh, I should, shouldn't say a fetus, but a, a fetus that has been found with a head and neck tumor. Um, and we help to deliver and secure the airway on delivery while the baby is still connected to the placenta. So uh, quite a range of different things. Yeah, I think for me listening to that, it's, it's actually I'm surprised by the, the sort of diversity of the procedures that you do. 
hopefully that gives everyone a, just a rough indication of you know what 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 you do um can you take us through your day today i mean right now it's friday afternoon so what if what have you been up to today one of the one of the fascinating things is when medical students uh spend you know f- two weeks or four weeks or six weeks with us in the ENT unit, almost certainly the two things that comes out of that is number one, oh, I didn't realize that you guys are quite normal and fun. <laughs> and number two, I didn't realize ENT does all these things, you know. Um, so on a typical week, um, week to week, um, so like I said, I spend about a third of my time at the children's hospital. So um, I do with uh, kind of pediatric airway challenges, pediatric tumors uh, and head and neck conditions. And then in the adult world, I might be dealing with some head and neck cancer. And then in the private world, I might just be dealing with some sinus disease. So for example, on a Monday, uh, I spend the day in the private just consulting um, and then by the evening I was on call and so I had to come in to uh, the children's hospital to do an emergency case overnight uh, and then by the following day I was at the children's hospital so I spent the morning operating um, and then the afternoon doing clinics and then once in a while you do have some emergency cases at uh, the other hospitals that you're on call with and you just come in after hours. Um, today is Friday as so you have suggested you know yesterday I did a case at St. Vincent's we finished up at about seven in the evening and then went home and then got called back to the children's hospital and then this morning uh, you know saw my patient from yesterday um, and then completed all the cases done at the children's today and then in the evening I'm just going to swing by and see a private patient before I go home um, and I think a lot of surgeons would have that variety um, a juggle between uh clinic and operating um, but also a juggle between several different locations that we operate on Um, that is actually one of the things that I enjoy about my work is that you know it looks different week to week Um, if I was a non-proceduralist I would be you know in clinic all day with the intermittent meetings if I was a non-proceduralist, I might be, you know, in a, in an ICU department uh, doing shift work or in an ED department doing shift work. My kind of lifestyle is obviously, or the surgical lifestyle is obviously, you know, is not desirable for, you know, some people, but it is something that I enjoy pretty much. And you do get to control that as well over time. And you'll, you'll realize this, that, you know, although the training is tough and hard, but, you know, once you become a consultant, you do have options of managing uh, how much or how little you want to work, how many places you want to work in and how few places you want to work in. Is, is there anything that you're listening to or reading at the moment that you'd recommend? Um, I am, well, it's interesting because this is a, a COVID pandemic. I don't know whether uh, when you're listening to this, we're out of the pandemic yet. I'm actually reading a book uh, called Crisis Leadership, um, you know, Leadership in Times of Crisis. Um, uh, the most recent kind of surgically oriented book uh, that I've read was actually by Atul Gawande. Now, um, one of the fascinating things is that if you look at medical memoirs, there is a lot of medical memoirs written by surgeons. One of the first books that I read um, was uh, When the Air Hits Your Brain by Frank Vertosik, who's, an, uh, um, who's a neurosurgeon. And then since that time, I've been reading books by multiple different surgeons. A few authors I can throw at you just so you can start thinking about it. So Richard Selzer, S-E-L-Z-E-R. Um, he has written lots and lots of books, le- letters to a young surgeon, letters to a young doctors. 
Atul Gawande, as I've already mentioned, has written about three books and he's a general surgeon in the US. Um, and those are, you know, a good one to start with. One of the oldest books that have not been published anymore is books written by George Sava, S-A-V-A. Uh, it was published in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And I have a whole collection of about 10 of his books. He's a plastic surgeon and um, I mean, he, he has written really awesome books, but you probably have to find this in, a, in a, an antique bookshop. But I enjoy those authors very much. What's, what's one thing that you can't live without? Oh, right now we all have to say iPhones, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> what's the one thing that I can't live without? Uh, phone, coffee, Netflix <laughs> in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are probably simple things that everyone can't live without nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, um, what would it be and, and why? Um, uh, I would probably say architect, architecture. I mean, um, I have always been fascinated with um, design, form and function. Um, I am an Instagram and Pinterest addict when it comes to, you know, uh, looking at houses and architectural designs. Uh, I think there is something innate within all of us that appreciates um, beauty uh, in terms of form and function, and and I think that shows in what you do as well as as as, as surgeons. Um, you know, I, I tell my registrars every operation has got to be beautiful. If it is not beautiful, you're probably doing it wrongly. Um, that you know, in the simplest of procedure, one of my simplest procedures is just putting a grommet in the ear, and boy, the joy of just being able to just pop a grommet in an ear beautifully—it's absolutely satisfying. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of that connection between um, form and function, and also some of the work that you do. Um, I think a lot of people would consider plastic or reconstructive surgery as one of the more sort of creative if you like um surgical specialties out there so i think it's interesting that um your your sort of interests outside of surgery are yeah and you you probably find that you know being a general surgeon an orthopedic surgeon a neurosurgeon you know or urologist there's always beauty in what you do you know one of the things that we want to do is finish up an operation well um you know be it with the perfectly aligned uh, staples on that knee or you know perfectly closed wound uh, after a robotic um prostate um you know there's there's a desire for us to do an excellent work and that's where the form and function comes in and yes you're right a lot of people associate that with plastics but i think that it's present in everything that we do you know you've got to do a good um uh, hepatectomy uh you know for the patient to do well and if you're a bit sloppy and near enough is good enough kind of thing uh you're not going to get good results so i think our, our our attention to form function beauty and perfection um puts us in good standing for our patients as well in terms of good surgical outcome so can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up? Uh, absolutely. So I was um, I was born in Indonesia and then I grew up in Singapore and I came to Australia about 25, 30 years ago. Obviously, I was an immigrant. Um, I had English as my second language um, and I came in and did high school and then I went on and I did psychology at Melbourne University. Uh, surprise, surprise, I uh, met a lovely lady who was a medical student at that time and I thought, oh, medicine sounds fun. 
Um, so I uh, did medicine to win the heart of a girl and I'm married to her now. She's an infectious diseases physician. <laughs> but uh, I didn't have an initial interest in medicine, believe it or not. Um, but again, that's the detours in life is probably where you need to be at the moment. Um, you know, doors open once in a while and you walk into it uh, not knowing what's behind that door. Um, so after finishing my psychology degree, I went and I did uh, medicine uh, at Melbourne University as a postgrad. And, and the, rest of, the rest is history. I did uh, my initial internship training at uh, Box Hill Hospital, Eastern Health. Uh, did about two years at Box Hill Hospital. Did a couple of years then after that at St. Vincent's Health Network. And then I went into general surgical training and then on to ENT. And throughout ENT training, we were rotated around the various uh, hospitals in the state. So I went through the Alfred, East, Eastern Health, St. Vincent's, Austin, uh, the Ironier Hospital. When you moved here as a, as, a, as a child, so how old when you moved? I came in as an international student. So I actually came in by myself. Uh, didn't have any family. I uh, had to make friends, had to get uh, reaccustomed or cultured to a new culture. Um, but that's one of those fascinating things in life. I think the time away from family for me was actually quite a learning experience. Uh, like a you know in the olden days when you talk about rights, you know uh, rites of passage, leaving your the comfort of your home is absolutely a rite of passage. Um, didn't have much money at that time. We were staying in a house in Parkville with like six other students six other international students uh, we used to feed on um, instant noodles pretty much every day <laughs> walked everywhere um, and it was it was fun it was obviously a time where you learn to live uh, frugally and you know thriftly um, and you get to appreciate the valuable things in life what were you like um, as a as a child or as a, as a teenager what was I like? I said, oh, you probably better ask my mom or dad. I probably wasn't the easiest person to deal with. I was uh, an introvert. I liked to be alone. Um, I liked to do my own thing and be in my own world. Um, I used to love watching a lot of television. Nowadays, I think everybody is on iPad, but I didn't grow up on iPads or iPods or iPhones. Sports was big. I was a swimmer, so I used to swim quite a bit at that time. And yeah, socially, obviously, with the multiple changes. So my younger childhood was in Indonesia and then my older childhood was in Singapore. So change was a constant in my life. So embracing new things was also always one of those things that you just pick up along the way. And perhaps that's what also the reason why I am where I am today is because of all the multiple different changes throughout life that you've experienced and you're just open to it. Um, I didn't grow up in one place. I grew up in multiple different places. And so being open to it really means that you are, you also learn to think outside the box, learn to adapt with new things. And that builds your resilience to a certain extent as well. So uh, in terms of moving around, was there a particular reason that you were moving around lots? Like, was that because of what your parents did for work or? 
the move was dad's work, but um, the, the one critical move was my, I have two younger sisters. My youngest sister was born with complete sensory neural deafness. And so at that time in Indonesia, there wasn't any uh, cochlear implantation. So we looked at that and we got that in Singapore. So it's almost a circle of life thing. Here I am an ENT surgeon, although I'm not a cochlear implant surgeon. But one of the uh, fascinating things was I was exposed to surgery and in particular otorhinolaryngology, ENT surgery, cochlear implant very early on in life because my sister uh, required cochlear implantation. And that was also something fascinating. So as a child, I was already exposed to the world of the disabled or the deaf uh, community. And that kind of opened you up to thinking about um, people who are less than able in our community. Small little things in life, you add that into your back and your, you know, you, know, you learn along the way. Um, you know, coming up from a from an Asian household, I guess, um, and, and me being also from an Asian household, um, sometimes there is uh, the sort of expectation. Um, did you feel like your parents placed an expectation of you on you to sort of, you know, p- pursue like a particular area of studies? Or so it's interesting. So my 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 mum. Is a, is a clinical psychologist. So mom was a trained psychologist. Dad was a business person. Um, when we found out that, our, um, that my sister was deaf, uh, we then focused our mind on a lot about the deaf education or the education for the, disabil- the disabled. Um, and so I knew that I was always going to go into a field where I would be involved with uh, helping the, the, the less than fortunate. Uh, Interestingly, when I finished my psychology degree and then told my parents that I was going to do medicine, they actually asked me to seriously think hard because they knew that medicine was going to be rough and tough and there's going to be long, arduous training. So it's interesting in that sense that although, yes, as uh, you know, in, in being from an Asian background, there's always a lot of that cultural expectation that you need to achieve. At that time, my mom and dad thought that actually being a psychologist was, was great. Why do you need to throw yourself into another field? You finish your psychology degree, you know, be a good psychologist, go into the workforce. And here I am telling them that I'm going to do another four year long degree to get onto medicine and they knew that the training will be you know more than just four years about 10 uh, years after that as well after graduation so they were happy with me doing well but they didn't put that much of an expectation for me so i was happy that they've opened up that opportunity for me to decide what's best for me so how would you have described yourself as a as a high school student and as a as a sort of a science student when you did your psychology degree? I was I was probably not performing as well as I could. Um, in a very simple way, I was probably a, a lazy student. You know, you submit your reports and you submit your assignments right on the day. I still remember I used to run to the Redmond Berry Building. Redmond Berry Building was where psychology was. And, you know, when the submission was supposed to be at 5, I'll be running there at 4.45 in the afternoon uh, trying to submit the paperwork at that time. Uh, I'm sure it's all done through email now. But 
but at that time I had we had to come and submit the proper assignment. So I was always a last minute worker. I was always uh, doing as little as possible to achieve as much as possible. Um, so I was a pretty ordinary student. Um, but but I think entering medicine or medical school, realizing that I was thrown into a community of super high achievers, everybody wanted to top their class. It put me in a slightly different running pack, I think. And I think being in medicine or doing medicine has really, really turned on that fire. Uh, everything was interesting. There's always a lot to learn. There's always so much more that you didn't know. Of course, there's always that imposter syndrome thinking that the, the guy next to you is better than you. Uh, it probably is true. Uh, but at least um, there is that desire for me to actually think, okay, this is fascinating. And everything that I'm studying today actually will matter at some stage. Um, you might not know the relevance of the Krebs cycle, but somehow the act of learning or trying to commit all that to memory uh, gives you that appreciation that there is so much detail in what we do uh, that is deeper than, 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 than we think. Um, so yeah, I think although I was a pretty ordinary student um, getting into medical school, was a turning point that actually made me realize this is fascinating. I really want to do this well. You said that you used to be a swimmer. Um, did you do any other sort of team sports or competitive sports at all? Uh, of course, I think we all did a bit of a bit of everything. Uh, but soccer, swimming were my two little things that I love. Um, of course, coming from an Asian background as well, badminton and table tennis was always thrown in. <laughs> but um, it wasn't as cool as swimming and soccer, I think. As, as a medical student, do you think you were, um, you know, someone who was competitive, always sort of trying to get the top marks and that sort of thing? Yeah, um, not really. It's, it's one of those fascinating things. Uh, as, a, as a medical student, because you your days look different as well and you're always exposed to a lot of things you're always exposed to new specialties new way of doing things you're always exposed to new knowledge um, I knew right from the start that there was no way that I was ever going to be on top of this um, and therefore uh, being comfortable with what you know uh, being comfortable with being safe uh, being comfortable with giving your best shot uh, you know it's enough I think we are sometimes our harshest judge for our own performance. And we need to be because at the end of the day, um, our patient's life depends on our knowledge, our skills and our, our plans and our treatment plans. So therefore, it's absolutely right that we need to be as excellent as we could possibly be. But it's one of those things where you have to think, I don't need to be the best surgeon in the world, but I need to be the best surgeon I can be for this patient in front of me. So knowing that difference actually puts away a lot of your uh imposter syndrome so just remember that so it's there's a difference between wanting to be the best surgeon in the world versus wanting to be the best surgeon you can be for this particular patient in front of you did you ever consider when you got into medical school um, did you ever have a moment where you thought mm, maybe this isn't this isn't for me and i like to look at something else uh, many times many times so 
I think all of us will go through that at some stage in our life. If it is not through medical school, you will experience that during internship and during uh, your residency training. Uh, medical school is tough and we accept that. And there's a lot of demand placed upon us. And no longer are you just a doctor for a patient. You're also an ethicist. You're also a scientist. You're also an advocate. You're also a scholar, teacher, and all of that put into one. So there is a real challenge in um, in, in knowing that, that, yes, you will never be enough or you will never measure enough. So there's always a bit of that. There's always a chance that there's always a, a thought like, you know, this is this is tough. Um, I should have just gone back to psychology or I should have just done something simpler. I want to do something creative. I want to do something totally different. And the opportunity is actually there. So we, firstly, you need to think about if you are thinking like that, if you are thinking, I just want to quit, you have to first examine yourself and think, is this because I'm just having a burnout moment, I'm having my uh, depressive anxiety issues, and we need to treat that. But at the same time as well, you need to be able to look out and say, look, I'm enjoying this, this is tough, but there are other options that we can do within medicine that may not be exactly what you're thinking about. For example, you know, people have gone from medicine into um, public health, into writing, into speaking, into um, even managing businesses. So there are lots and lots of doctors out there with dual careers. You know, they're partially clinician, but they are also partially leaders, speakers, teachers, uh, coaches, um, and other things like that. And I'm sure you've heard of great doctors who have spent the first half of their career being a doctor and the second half of their career uh, being a politician or a leader of a company um, or other things outside of medicine. I think that um, that notion of, you know, is this something, is this a period where I'm having a bit of trouble with burning out and uh, I guess sort of training fatigue and all those sorts of things is something that you're quite a passionate advocate for. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that um, later on in the podcast. Um, focusing a little bit more on, you know, your your time in medical school, did you, what what, what were you interested in as a medical student? Was there a particular, um, you know, specialty, surgical or non-surgical um, that you were interested in that you thought you would be, that you thought you would be doing? Yeah, um, and that's that's quite important because a lot of us are already trying to lock ourselves into one particular specialty. So yes, you can do that. Some of you were born to be right toe surgeon or left ear surgeon. And if that's really, really the only thing that makes you happy, then go ahead and do that. I was more of an open-minded, ready to take on anything. So I changed my mind uh, during the course of the years uh, of in medical school. So firstly, because of my psychology degree, I thought I was going to do psychiatry. Uh, I found it fascinating. Uh, but the more I learned about uh, the acute medicine and challenges, I then got interested with uh, um, uh, to think about emergency department, emergency medicine. I mean, uh, doing crit care, emergency was something that was fascinating. And then um, over time as well, you did a bit of a bit of pediatrics and I wanted to be a pediatrician and then I got exposed to surgery and I thought, oh, this is cool as well. Um, I want to do surgery. So I had a lot of interest even while through while going through the training program. And, you know, it's always good to just keep your, keep your options reasonably open, um, not to lock yourself too quickly. Of course, 
one of the one of the one of the quicker things earlier on in your career is realizing whether or not you want to do something um, in general like medicine or you want to do something in general like surgery um, and also it's something where where it will change over time um, and then um, the the exposure to your um, your uh, sessions or what do you call that your rotations will actually pique some interest in you and just remember as well you might be so interested in general surgery or neurosurgery and you'll suddenly meet a urologist or a pediatric surgeon that is completely uh, fascinating and inspiring and your career might change just by virtue of an encounter with a you know a, a surgeon or a clinician or a doctor was there somebody like that for you? Yes, um, probably not one, but many. Um, so every time I had a surgical exposure and every time I chatted with different surgeons, I felt inspired. A couple of names that come to mind. When I was at the Northern, I met Professor Hamish Ewing, who is a uh, general surgeon. I was inspired by him when I was at the Alfred uh, I met Brent Uren, who is an ENT surgeon, and I was inspired by him. Um, I did my medical elective with a general surgeon in Kenya, Peter Bird, and who is also a Frax, um, a College of Surgeons fellow. And I was absolutely inspired by him. Um, I was with in in Eastern Health with uh, Nigel Mann, who is a plastic surgeon. And again, I was inspired. Uh, lots and lots of uh, different people who have inspired me along the way. Um, and and books. Books was also one of the other things as well. I was just fascinated with all the surgical books or surgical memoirs and their journeys in surgery. And that was really what, what made me think, actually, um, surgery is a fascinating specialty. And that was something that towards the end of my medical training, um, I got really really interested in and one of the things as well is um going through medical school um i you know i had a partner she's she's now an infectious diseases physician um and we knew that we were you know we got married uh, on the day of her graduation um and 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 we knew during residency training when you know that we were i was thinking about surgery she was thinking about medicine I was reasonably hesitant initially. It took me about a couple of years before fully committing myself to surgery um, because I knew that the training was going to be tough. It was going to be demanding. It was going to be 10 years of potentially traveling to different states or different uh, countries for fellowship. And true enough, I did three fellowships. I did one in Canada, one in Brisbane, and one in Auckland. Um, and so, and with three kids as well. Um, and, and so I knew that that was going to be part of the surgical training. It needed to be both a personal and a social decision as well. So I wanted my, at that time, my wife to to be agreeable to me spending the next 10 years doing surgical training. And she was, and although I hesitated initially, um, once we both met that decision together, it was pretty easy going after that. You know, you said that you... You really tried to go to a lot of sort of get as much surgical exposure as possible and and talk to you know like people who are in leadership positions so senior consultants senior registrars heads of unit etc cetera, etc cetera. what sort of um if you had like any sort of techniques or, or tips if you think for medical students to 
to do that as well because I think some of us find it can be a little bit intimidating going to the to the head of unit and, and we just we don't know what to say to them or, or what we can do. So can you talk a little bit about what the things that you did? One of the best things about finding about a specialty. So when you choose a specialty, so if I could step back and say, keep your options open, you will find that you are more drawn to certain things than others. So obviously I was more drawn to surgery in general rather than um, medicine in general. Um, and so once probably the earlier decisions that you need to make is roughly what kind of specialty. Is it surgical, medical? Is it going to be pediatric? Or is it going to be kind of ONG, GP or other things like that? Um, but once you've made that decision that you were going to think about surgery, then choosing the specific specialty within surgery is a secondary decision. And you need to just expose yourself to as many things as possible and realize that you're not just choosing a specialty, but you're choosing your community because you're going to spend the next 30, 40 years of your life being with that community. So you better like that particular community. Um, for example, I found I initially I wanted to do uh, general surgery, plastics or ENT. The final decision was really based on the fact that I had a lot more enjoyable conversations in the ENT conferences. Um, I felt that I gel with their with the culture. I gel with the people or the ethos. And it doesn't mean that I didn't like general surgeons or the plastic surgeons. It was just for me, I felt more at home with the community of ENT surgeons than I did with, with the others. I, I still think, though, if I ended up doing general surgery or plastics, I would still be very happy. Um, but for me, uh, what nailed it was the fact that it wasn't just a specialty that I like, but the people in that specialty that I actually liked as well. So, Eric, you're talking a little bit about um, the fact that you gelled really well with the, the, the culture of ENT and that you'd be happy um, if you'd done general surgery or, or plastic surgery. So just in terms of some specific tips. A couple of simple things. Um, number one, in every public hospital that you are going to be learning in or going through, there are always registrars there. So you could go to the orthopedic ward, you could go to the you know surgical ward, find out the names of the registrars and kind of just email them or get in touch with them and say, look, I'm interested. Can I pop in and join you? Uh, most of the registrars are going to be fine with that. Mm, the other thing you can do as well, you look at an operating uh, list or a clinic list. You can go to the clinic and think, okay, when is the um, urology clinic and when is the orthopedic clinic? Or you can go to the operating theaters and have a look at what's going on in the operating theaters. For me at that time, it was very easy to do all that. Just get in touch with the registrars, get in touch with the consultants if you can. If the registrars tell you which consultant you should speak to, just go and speak to that consultant because it doesn't necessarily mean that the, 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 the head of unit is the most open to education or the friendliest. You just have to be exposed to somebody in that unit and you'll be able to just get in there that way. So try that. Um, nowadays, it might be a little bit trickier, but you just... You, you, you know how to play the, you know, the play the game and stay within the rules. And once you're accredited in a particular hospital, most of us are very comfortable having you come along with us uh, for a couple of uh, days or a couple of weeks uh, informally just being interested in it. So talking about your training, so you, you got onto the program um, after doing a couple of years of, I guess, unaccredited uh, registrar. Um, how did you find that experience of getting onto the program? Because you mentioned that um, in, in, in the previous interview that you've done that you had to learn to accept rejection during your training. Um, 
you know, how did you how did you learn how to do that? And what was maybe 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 what was one of the sort of more difficult rejections to accept? Um, it's absolutely challenging, and the game changes. So I think it was what fifteen years ago, twenty years ago now that I, I you know, fifteen years ago at least, uh, applied to surgical training and got through the program and all of that stuff. The way. You apply to surgical training at that time was different. I had to go through basic surgical training where we did two years of various different surgical specialties. Now you have to apply directly into a particular set program. So the way you kind of prepare for it is different. So, but you know, if you had a surgical interview in French, you will all learn how to speak French. It's one of those things that we just have to um, meet the standards and, and obey the rules of the game. But yes, absolutely. So it took me a third go uh, before I got onto ENT. Um, that was what I really wanted to do. But by that time, I was already in the old kind of what we call the old general surgical training program. Uh, we have grown up uh, in our training because you're top of your class, top of your school, and then you get onto medical school where everybody's top of their class. So rejection is always hard. And as doctors and medical students, imperfection is often quite hard to accept as well because we just want to be the best doctor, the perfect doctor, and we just want to be the perfect candidate or the perfect applicant. And I think I have come to that point that, look, we have to accept that all of us are all a little bit different. We have strengths and weaknesses. And I went in applying knowing that there is a chance that I will be rejected. But at the end of the day, every year that you spend in the unaccredited training program is a learning year. Every year that you spend dealing with oh yet another application, yet another paperwork, is still a learning process for you. And I would rather be doing IV and getting you know IV insertion, urinary catheterization, and everything. I still remember have, having that mindset in my mind when I was you know second, third, or fourth year out trying to get onto the program. Uh, you know oh yet another urinary reinsertion, or yet another IV line to put in. In my mind, I think I'm getting paid to do something that is worthwhile. Um, although the job application part is challenging, I'm still doing a very worthwhile job. And, and that's how I look at it. And it's one of those things where you ask yourself, am I desperately trying to do the thing that I love or am I just learning to love the thing that I do? It's one of those fascinating mindset things. I know it's all sound very, what's the word, new age fluffy, but that was how I got through my rejection to say, look, you know, I had two rejections from ENT before I got onto the program, but I was already doing surgical training at that time. And I knew that eventually I was going to get a job somewhere um, as long as I just stayed being faithful at what I do, doing a good job um, and respecting the, the program and the assessment. Uh, you'll you, you do, you, you get whatever. And, you know, if you think about it, What's the worst that could happen? You just have to think about another specialty. And that other specialty is not a lesser specialty. That other specialty is an alternative that is just as good. And if you you know, start valuing some specialties more important than others, then I think you may have lost the, the perspective. Uh, in my mind, being a you know pathologist, uh, a cytologist, an emergency department physician, a psychiatrist, uh, a GP, a public health physician, we're all equal. There's no one specialty better than another. Um, one specialty might be more suited to you than another, but there is no one specialty more important or better than another. 
The other thing about rejection, if I could add as well, is having a good social support. I think we all take rejection a little bit better when you've got a good social network, family, loved ones. And also knowing that you are not the only one who has experienced rejection. Um, every doctor would have had an experience of rejection, either rejection by the uh, medical school that they wanted to go to or the health network that they wanted to be in or a particular job and that rejection is going to happen all the time as part of our normal so if you accept rejection as a normal expected part of life you'll probably be able to handle that a bit better if you take on rejection in the context of good social support you'll be able to handle that a little bit better as well and just remember that that happens in the legal world in the financial world you know rejection is something that is part of life and we we are not immune to it no matter how clever we think we are as doctors in terms of in terms of your support network so your wife you mentioned is an infectious diseases physician um i guess for some of the listeners who might be thinking about starting their own family and that sort of thing um you know surgery can be demanding in terms of your hours as can most other specialty training can you talk a little bit about the support that you how you, how you both supported each other that is um that so that's that's an important point you have to look at your career in the context of your family and social situation no matter what kind of family you came from or no matter what kind of family you're planning to build for the future always take into consideration your um your career now uh it's 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 nice to know that right now there are a lot more flexible training options compared to when we were going through uh, training. Of course, it is not perfect, but we're moving towards a better work-life harmony or work-life balance. You don't do medicine or surgery alone. You do it in the context of your family, friends, and your network. So we we had to accept that, yes, the training is going to be hard, both for her in her infectious diseases training and for me. Um, but also, that also means that we both knew what we were going through. During the year that she was sitting for her FRACP exam, um, I you know, did what I can to support her. And during the year that I was sitting my part one and my part two, um, she was taking the reverse. She was supporting me. So in a sense, it was a decision that we made together. And we're all resilient. The fact that you're here as a medical student means that you have had developed resilience up to this point that you've reached this point. So you will find solutions. You will find ways of balancing your needs versus your wants. You will find ways of balancing your life. Uh, you just got to be creative at it sometimes. I think on that, on that topic of resilience, um, you know, I think nowadays, definitely at Melbourne Uni, there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, having a growth mindset and, um, you know, those, those sorts of mental tools in a way to, to help you train the skill of resilience. Um, but I think when you talk, when we talk with a lot of surgeons about their career and, and particularly the training phase of that career, that resilience can really be tested. Um, and part of that is, you know, what, what people call quote-unquote burning out. Um, to you, what does burning out mean? And was there ever a time in your training where you felt burnt out? And what did you do about that? Um, yeah, so this is one of those things that are quite, uh, one of those issues that's quite close to heart. Um, so firstly, as a baseline, 
the fact that you're a medical student studying to be a doctor and uh, where you are right now just already shows that that you do already have some measure of resilience. But yes, looking into the future, burnout is a big uh, challenging topic here. How we practice medicine 50 years ago is different to how we practice it today. Uh, There's a lot more um, administrative, legal and um, ethical, political, uh, uh, electronic challenges that we have today. In the past, it could be that you, you know, I need to take this patient to theater and that's all you have to do, say the word and it gets done. Now you got to click into various different program, log in, and you've got to do 101 things to get a patient to theater. You know, just a simple example is you are now inundated with so many more emails, contacts, and various different things that you need to do even as a student compared to what we did many, many years ago. Just to define, to, to clarify this, and we often muddle things up, there is terms like mental illness or mental health issues or mental challenges, and then the term burnout or wellness or well-being. And then there's also now new terms called moral injury and other things like that. So it can be quite confusing. But let me just um, be clear and be respectful. Mental illness is different to burnout. Mental illness is a DSM-5 category, an ICD-10 category. You need to meet a certain number of criteria to be defined as having a mental illness. Um, For example, you need to meet five out of eight depression criteria to be diagnosed with major depression. And you learn that from your psychiatry that that is a a true medical disease. Um, It's a mental illness. So therefore, the treatment is being with a mental health professional. Uh, go through your GP, see a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist. That's core. You need to maintain, just like you need to maintain physical health, you need to maintain mental health. But burnout is a different thing that is separate to mental illness, although they might share a very similar picture. So burnout is a state that has been defined, a psychological state that has been defined by three things. Um, Essentially, uh, it is an occupational, a chronic occupational state. So it is not a mental illness. It is not a disease. It is a chronic psychological occupational state. Um, And we need to know that because that has also been, the WHO has actually created a classification for burnout. Um, and, And therefore, the two, although they might coexist, they might overlap, they might come from a very similar source, they are two things. So burnout comes from workplace chronic exposure or, uh, of negative uh, you know experience in the workplace whereas burnout is a um, sorry whereas forgive me whereas mental illness is a diagnosable state now add to this you know somebody said are we you know is everybody burnout now there's a difference between burnout versus normal psychological or workplace stress so we will look after sick patients and that is stressful we will look after uh, we will be facing exams and that's anxiety provoking but that does not mean that you're burning out while you're looking after that particular patient you are stressed absolutely you're tired absolutely but there's a difference between stress versus burnout versus mental illness and stress is part of our daily response to challenging events. Um, we go into you know, our gym and our weight training. Um, we put our muscles to a certain amount of stress. But if you have good stress and good rest, 
you will develop muscle resilience, you will develop muscle strength. And so periods of rest and stress is necessary for our muscle growth, but it's also necessary for our cognitive growth and our mental growth. The problem is when is that stress all the time with not enough rest. That's when you tip over into burnout. And therefore, if you add that third factor of mental illness, then of course, you might feel that your world is collapsing on you. Now that you know the difference between just daily stress versus chronic workplace stress, otherwise known as burnout, versus mental health issue, then you can tackle the challenges individually. Mental health issues, you need to see a mental health physician, a mental health clinician. Um, you know, Occupational health issues, you need to do something about your occupational health, which means that you know, no amount of antidepressant will fix the fact that your computer system in a hospital is so bad that it puts a lot of stress on you on a day-to-day -day basis. So dealing with the occupational challenges is different to dealing with the mental health issues. I think just, just following up on the, on the second part of that question, have you um, ever experienced burnout in your, in your training? And if so, how did you get around that? It's, it's interesting because we all go through our, our training uh, in different hospitals. And I remember very vividly being working in one hospital and just working, working, working hard. That was my exam time in my final year of training. I was pretty much on call one in one as the only registrar in that hospital. Uh, so I was on call 12 days out of 14. Um, and I had to share that two days of weekend uh, with another registrar from another uh, hospital. Um, so 12 days out of 14 being on call all the time. But interestingly, and I was sitting for my exam, interestingly, I was not burnt out because I felt that my bosses were protective of me. I was getting a lot of support because I was sitting my exam and people were kind of cheering for me and I was, you know, getting ready for a big thing. And I had an end point, which was I needed to finish my exam. I needed to finish my training. So all that pain of being on call was something that I knew I just had to complete. There was an end point. There was another time in another hospital where, of course, I was working hard. The work wasn't complex, but it was just repeatedly monotonous. Phone calls after phone calls, uh, the same thing over and over again. And I felt that I was not well supported by um, my colleagues. And I felt that the politics of the hospital or the system of the hospital was very much um, challenging or restrictive. Uh, of course, the same thing, toxic workplace culture, poor leadership, poor um, uh, administrative support, all that added to my burnout. So I had two different years, one where both when I worked hard, in one hospital I felt supported, in the other I did not feel supported. And that was the difference between me burning out and not burning out. And so therefore, uh, when I had that burnout experience, what I did was obviously I mentioned it to my family, my immediate family. They knew without you telling them, they knew that you were burnt out. My, my, my beloved dear wife understood that I was just going through a rough patch and I felt really, um, I wasn't flying. I was just kind of dragging my feet to work every day. A few things that, that was quite important around that time as well was not just that my social, uh, my family network, but my social network was quite important as well. Um, and of course, at that time, I spoke to a few uh, more senior people. Now, I need to say this. I, I do encourage you to get help from professional helplines. That is quite important. 
But there are also times when I feel that all I needed to do was speak to a fellow surgeon, uh, to speak to a fellow registrar who actually understood exactly what I was going through. So I strongly encourage you to tap into the actual current help that you have. Fellow medical students, fellow registrars, residents and consultants are your greatest source of support and, and encouragement. I did call um, the necessarily the necessary helpline, the formal helpline. Um, I did see my GP, but I did not need to do anything beyond that because I felt that having a good family, a good social network, a good um, a mentor, if I could put it in another word, you know, somebody to just bounce off ideas with, um, was 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 good for me. Um, and of course, um, uh, just being able to find that inner resilience wherever it comes from, whether coming from self-help books, meditation, mindfulness, um, uh, you know, social networks, or even spiritual or religious network. If that's something that would benefit your mental health, go for it. I think it's important that we know that when we go to work in front of our patients that we bring our best self. And now best self means that we need to be healthy physically, uh, mentally and emotionally. You know that because, you know, if you had a terrible, terrible, you know, private life or personal life, it does spill over into your work life and the other way around as well. Thinking if we turn that definition of social network around, so you're someone who, as a consultant now, you're you're quite active on social media. You're on Twitter and you're on you're on Instagram as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the reasons behind why you you engage with these things? For some people, this can be a bit of a polarizing topic. So you know, can you share your your point of view and and your sort of motivation behind why you engage with these sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, I stumbled into social media. Uh, what I mean by that is that it was never on my radar that I was going to be a social media, you know, expert or advisor or anything like that. But you've right, as you mentioned, all of a sudden I've got 22,000 Twitter followers or something like that. And then on Instagram and, and, and everything else as well that comes with it. Um, some people would easily say, yes, it is a frivolous waste of time if you use it poorly. The way I put it to you is this social media is just basically now streamline um, mainstream media. The number of times that tweets have made the news and changed economy, uh, you know that, and that that happens right now. Of course, there is a lot of bad information out there on social media. There's a lot of fake news out there on social media. But you, the, the, the social media itself is just a platform or the medium of the message. Um, I personally, and speaking from a very personal experience, I have found my presence on on social media to be an accelerant to my career. I have been able to engage with um, lots and lots of people through social media in ways that we would never have done traditionally. So, you know, physical and geographical uh, connection means that we're limited to who we are and where we are right now. But the fact that now I can engage a fellow ENT surgeon from, um, you know, the US, Africa, the UK, and have an engagement, um, it's it's really really good for me. Um, it's educational, it's beneficial. The fact that I can be talking about the pediatric airway uh, with an ICU physician from the UK, um, uh, a neonatologist from the US, um, and also anesthetist from other parts of Australia means that we have opened up the doors for immediate connection through social media um, 
without the geographical or time limitation. So to me, um, knowing how to use social media wisely is actually a tool that you will need to have in the future. You are going to have, to need to have a virtual presence in your future career. Okay, it's like the old facts, you know, um, we all needed facts back in the 1970s and 80s. So right now, I see social media like Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook as just another address for you to land on so your patients can find you. Um, being accessible uh, is both a blessing and a curse. Um, I have had a lot of wonderful engagements uh, through social media, um, speaking engagement, uh, patient referrals, um, uh, educational opportunities through social media, you know, I, 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 that has been a benefit for me. But of course, you just need to know how to use them wisely. Don't engage the trolls, uh, don't spread any useless or fake news. Um, and it's one of those things where if you're quite a fascinating person in real life, I'm sure you're going to be fascinating fascinating uh, on Twitter. If you're a, a, um, uh, a very negative, cynical person in real life, you'll probably sound very negative and cynical on social media as well. So it's just an extension of who you are. I think specifically for, for medical students, um, you know, some of us, we worry about um, our online media presence. Um, you know, maybe some of the things that we post on our social media accounts, which are intended for like our friends and and sort of close social circles that um the colleges might look at those or, or future sort of employers might look at those and scrutinize those can you talk a little bit about you know if, if you think that's an issue or um maybe how to work around that that is a good example and that's one of the most common fear that people have about engaging on the social media sphere and the way i put it to you is is, is quite easy you can keep however much of your social media presence private uh, some doctors uh, be or will be on Twitter, you know, tweeting their children's photos while they're having ice cream and all of that. That's fine for a lot of people. I have never tweeted my children's photos. Um, I may have shown parts of their ear or their nose or their throat, but I have never shown, you know, their face or given their names. And same with my wife as well. I've never put her full face on social media. Uh, but that's just a choice that I make. Some other people would be more than happy to do that. Very specifically, you can have a very professional LinkedIn social media, you know, Twitter and, and, and Facebook presence. Um, and you can just essentially put the things that you know will benefit people. So a very simple rule is, number one, is this going to be informative? Number two, is this going to be inspirational or enjoyable, if I could put it another way? Um, you, you don't have to be tweeting your work parties photos. You don't have to be putting all of those private things on social media. You can still have your private Facebook account just for you and your family members where you put up pictures of you, you know, going somewhere on a holiday. That's absolutely fine. Um, but when you want to have a more professional social media presence, you can set up a separate account where all you do is tweet um, information relating to professionalism. And just remember as well, the engagement around social media is not like a normal engagement where there's a lot of nuances. Uh, when we speak, we read a lot of body language, intonation. In social media, you lose a lot of that. Um, so things can be misinterpreted very easily. Um, 
But as long as you're respectable, you're going to be safe. Um, the moment you start putting opinions, um, you might be challenged. I think we'll move on a little bit and, and talk a bit more about um, you know some of the more reflective questions. Um, so I think in, in closing, I guess just just to summarize your your the rest of your career. So you got your um, you were appointed as a fellow of the college in 2015. Um, you then completed three fellowships. So you worked in Canada um, at the Dalhousie University Hospital doing uh, doing head and neck surgery as well as facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. Then you did a fellowship in 2017 um, in pediatric otolaryngology and head and neck surgery in Brisbane. And you also did um, I think a similar role but in Auckland New Zealand um so for you um you're probably one of the the younger guests in terms of your career progression uh, I'm wondering you know because you you're also your experiences are probably slightly more relatable to us and what we're going through um what is one lesson that you know now that you wish um, that you could have learned a little bit earlier in your career probably to think that you do not have to have a fixed target and it's uh, life is a bit of a journey and the detours in life is probably where you need to be now did i plan to be a pediatric and adult ent surgeon dealing with complex airway or head and neck tumors i, I wasn't planning on that um, it was something that came about um, throughout my training i was exposed to the right people at the right time um, and then choosing the particular specialty subspecialty training again i was exposed to the right people at the right time and and there was a right need and a lot of life is like that anyway where we realize that actually this is a wonderful door i don't know what will what is behind this door but i'll walk into it again um so a lot of the stresses was in trying to just achieve that one thing i just want to do this i just want to do this i just want to do this and that puts a lot of pressure on us so i think i would have enjoyed my surgical training a lot more as well if i knew that i was just going to be open to whatever that life brings uh, a, a few things so uh, earlier on in your training as a medical student you start thinking about vaguely which surgical or medical or ong or GP direction or crit care direction. Once you do your residency training, you might then continue to be focused towards a particular training program. Just be mindful of the selection criteria in each of those programs. You're smart enough to work out the how to play the game and how to play it well and to be well positioned in that particular specialty. But always be ready to be open to other options because every surgical specialty is a good specialty once you go through into a particular surgical specialty and you're open to your training then again there are subspecialty locations or areas um, uh, in that particular specialty i'm sure the general surgical trainee will tell you that there is a huge difference between breast and endocrine versus colorectal versus upper gi versus transplant and very similarly in ENT as well, you know, I didn't realize the difference between the ear surgeon, the nose surgeon, the throat surgeon and the pediatric or the head and neck surgeon until I start going through it. Um, and then towards the middle part of my career, or the middle part of my training, as I then started focusing on, OK, what kind of an ENT surgeon do I want to be? Um, and then choosing the uh, fellowships around that. And I chose my fellowship training, as, as you've already mentioned based on location and based on what I enjoyed 
but also thirdly, based on the reality. So I loved the facial plastics and the head and neck reconstruction part of my work. And that was one of, and I love Canada. And that was one of the reasons why I went to Canada for my facial plastics and head and neck uh, reconstructive uh, fellowship. Uh, but I also knew that there was a need for a pediatric ENT surgeon to do head and neck cases and complex airway reconstructive cases in Melbourne. So I did my second and third fellowship um, knowing that there is a need. So I married the desire and the need. And that's why I ended up with three fellowships in three different countries. And people said I was crazy doing that. I just said, well, it was enjoyable. Every single one of those fellowships were absolutely enjoyable. You learn to pick up new skills, new stuff, of new way of doing things. And it, it gave you a great network as well. Friends in the US and Canada, friends in you know New Zealand and friends in other parts of the country. So every single year for us was, was a fascinating year. And I'm now at St. Vincent's and the Royal Children's Hospital and I'm doing the stuff that I love uh, because uh, although I wasn't planning for this, it just came about through a series of turns of events. Um, and that to me was looking back, I'm happy to be where I am. And looking back, I realized that all of those hard, uh, you know, um, journeys or detours um, put me exactly where I need to be right now. I guess coming coming from an international background, I think you've been through some challenges that are a bit more specific towards international students. So can you, you know, for, for I guess some of the people who are listening who might be international students, um, can you just share a little bit of any advice or your experiences in those sorts of areas? Um, yeah, uh, particularly during this COVID pandemic time, I'm sure there's a lot of isolated international students um, who who was having it, uh, you know, going through a tough time here. Again, you are in one of the safest countries on earth. Um, you should be grateful and be happy uh, and uh, feel um, a certain sense of privilege. And you're in one of the best medical schools in the whole wide world, I think. I'm sorry if you're not from Melbourne University. I, I, I was from Melbourne University, so I still consider this the best university in the world. Now, uh, and again, it is that stage of life in that part of life. Um, of course, as a as an international student, having to come to Australia and having to learn a new way of doing things, of course, I always felt a certain sense of um, being an outsider. And I, maybe that was just something that I've always had, knowing that I was always an outsider, so I had to work extra hard to get to where I where I need to be. Um, and that's just something that I had to accept very early. Now, uh, just remember as well that 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 you're in a privileged position, one of the things that you can tap into is your international medical student group or network or society. And don't just look at medicine, look at those outside of medicine. Um, what makes you feel at home is community. Um, so during these difficult times, just look out to your international student community and there will be some. They m may be socially based around sports or crafts or arts or they may be religiously based. And that's absolutely fine. Go for the both the social, the religious, the mental uh, support, whatever kind of support that you could find. And, and, and this season will pass. Once you've gone through the training, through 
medical Melbourne University Medical School or any other medical school that you're in, you are in a very good position uh, to be a doctor pretty much anywhere in the world, if I could put it that way. I'm not saying that we we are the best, but I'm saying that you are well prepared uh, to be a doctor wherever you are, whether you go back to your home countries or whether you stay in Australia or whether you go to another country altogether different, you are well positioned um, to, to do well because you have been trained well. And this is tough, but this too shall pass. And by all means, you will be able to find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you need to have a chat with somebody specifically, I am more than happy to be contacted, to have a bit of a you know discussion socially over Zoom or anything like that to try and encourage you um, towards the finish line. Yeah, I think that's really generous of you to offer that. So, so thank you. One of, the, one of the two sort of final questions we had was how much of where you are today do you attribute to your hard work and how much of it do you think is luck oh in terms of percentage i don't know you have to work hard um there's a fascinating thing that i've always had very early in life is that concept of um hard work as in h-a-r-d hard work h-e-a-r-t and holy work or what i call sacred work um and and I, th- I, I think, you know, your job uh, when it deals with the life of another person is all of the above. Uh, you got to do, you got to work hard to get to where you are and to get to where you want to be. You got to put your heart into it and the emotion is part of it. You're not just, you're a scientist, but you're not just a scientist. You're applying your science in the art of helping another person. And it's wholly sacred work whenever you're dealing with another life. You know, at the end of the day, your 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 knife skills might determine the life and death of another person's child or parents. Um, but you're absolutely right as well. I've, I've mentioned earlier that there has been a lot of detours in my life. Um, if you asked me 10 years ago where I would be right now, it would be a totally different answer. So yes, I think there is uh, an element of providence, luck, uh, fate to what you do. Um, that is beyond our control. What you can control is how you react to accepting that. Um, like I said, I was happy to do general surgery. I was happy to do plastics. Uh, I got onto ENT and looking back, I was like, why did I want to work so hard to do other things when here I am doing the stuff that I actually love and loving the stuff that I'm actually doing? And I think, yes, there is a combination of the two. Uh, fate, fate, luck, or, or, or providence is beyond you. Uh, you can only work as hard as you can. Um, uh, beyond that, I think it is a little bit of that, that um, providence. And finally, um, there's a quote from you. Um, You said that, I also learned that I can't be everything that I want to be. A husband, a dad, a traveler, social animal, party goer, and a surgical trainee are all at the same time. Um, Sometimes something's got to give. I couldn't go to all the holidays, concerts, and parties that I wanted to go to. I had to miss out on some of my wife and kids' significant moments due to exams, conferences, and emergency cases, and, and so on and so forth. If you had the chance to go back and revisit some of those decisions, is there anything that you would have done differently? Very hard to answer that. and But I think looking back, I am just grateful to be where I am right now. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, I wish I had not missed one particular birthday party. I wish I had not missed uh, one particular anniversary. 
but life is life you know and the big picture the big scheme of it all is um that you know i'm i'm grateful and i'm happy to be where i am right now but you're absolutely right. there's only 24 hours a day and you are going to be a doctor a surgeon a physician a clinician or whatever you're going to be the demands that is placed upon us and our role as clinicians is very high and something does have to give something has to give um, but also in place of that you you might miss on a birthday party but you know believe me the kind of satisfaction that you might get out of saving a life is immeasurable the satisfaction that you get seeing you know your patients get better is immeasurable so although you do sacrifice a bit of personal um you know you make personal sacrifices but you also probably get such deep satisfaction that not too many other industries ever have i don't know what it's like in the architectural or economics or law industry um, but i think seeing a patient get better is one of the things that no one could ever deny you of um, and and i'm not sure if 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 that feeling um uh, will ever go away just being able to do a good job seeing a patient do well and finishing a good operation is, is something that is so deep that is so satisfying that all of our little sacrifices is actually worth it um, but remember as well i am sure i'm speaking to a group of people with various different kinds of lives none of us lead a perfect life uh, we might come from uh, challenging families and in the future we might have challenging families uh, you know difficult relationships or you know kids who are unwell i don't know what it will look like for any single one of us we just have to remember that we do not put our career over and above our life in general our career is one part of the big picture of who we are um the last thing you want is to be a surgeon at the end of your career when you're 65 or 70 realizing that you have worked so hard to the bone that you have sacrificed everything um one of those things that i made um a decision earlier on in life is knowing that i could I, i need not be and i could not be um that person who publishes 15 papers a, a week and speaks in 20 different um uh, you know conferences a month uh, i knew that i wasn't going to be that because i would rather choose to spend time with my kids um rather than doing all of that so i knew that um being a professor so and so or a research assistant so and so or an, um something like that is is not something that i was seeking because that wasn't my goal so at the end of the day you also have to think about your values and what you want to preserve what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're not willing to sacrifice and one of those things was just um family for me your your family may not remember one or two um missed birthdays but they will remember if you are an angry surgeon coming home every single night completely wo- worked to the bone they will know who you are they probably will not remember the one or two events that you have missed so just remember that value um and put your career within that value rather than putting the career over your life 
I think that's a in terms of your life. So um, the last question is always, what will we find you doing this weekend? <laughs> this weekend is interesting. Um, you've mentioned an international student group. Um, I've actually, well, actually, no. This weekend, I'm actually going to be with family. That's next weekend, sorry. I'm supposed to speak to a small group of international student about uh, the, the about faith and work and, um, and practical living. Um, uh, but this weekend is family. Uh, I'm not on call. I had been on call last weekend and the weekend before. So this weekend, uh, enjoying uh, time with the family. And that's, that's, uh, I bought a game for my kids and that I haven't told them about. And I bought, there's a puzzle that I still need to finish. <laughs> yeah. And books, obviously. Um, I, I, I'm going to finish up that crisis leadership book. And I'm probably going to move on to this other book that I've just bought um, from Oliver Sacks. Oh, I forgot the title now. Oliver Sacks is one of those new, uh, one of those writers, obviously. Um, and I just got a book sitting on. In fact, no, I probably have got about seven books sitting on the on my bedside table waiting to be finished. Oh, well, Eric, I think um, firstly, thank you for sharing um, and having a conversation with us on a wide range of topics. Um, I think your perspective, well, firstly, as, a, as, an, as someone who comes from an international background is, is particularly interesting because, you know, when, when we look at the surgeons and the sort of people who are in the leadership positions, we don't see people who look like, you or who look like for, for all of us they don't they don't look like us and i think um it's really valuable to hear that perspective and also um as someone who's potentially a little bit more relatable to us as well um you know why i think a lot of the sort of the, the stories and the virtues of, of the sort of more uh, i guess the more senior surgeons is useful and it's inspiring to hear those as well i think um, hearing from you in terms of things that are a little bit more relatable to us you know social media um etc etc um, will also be quite an interesting thing and, and hopefully spark a bit of discussion. So um, on behalf of everyone who's listening, I'd like to say thanks for your time today. Um, I know that we sort of ran a little bit over, but I ho- hopefully you found that conversation thought-provoking and I, I guess happy reading this weekend and I hope the kids enjoy the game as well. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.